All right. Good morning, everybody. And thank you to our presider, praise leader, and even Pastor Tom for leading us in that time. And yeah, I hope you're all well, as always. And obviously, 2020 to 2021, it's a long and tiring season. But regardless, every single Sunday, I'm very thankful to be able to worship, to share God's word with you. Every Sunday morning is a new adventure, I'm sure, for many of you. Like for me during worship, I was like, calming down my son Ezra <laughs> like you know so I understand when you're home it's it's very hard to feel like you're adequately prepared to come before God but thank God that he's gracious and he meets us where we're at and yeah if you're new or visiting we want to welcome you uh, I do encourage you uh, very rarely are we able to cover everything we hope to in the text or in the message so definitely stick around in the zoom room if you have any questions or you want any clarification as that's something we always love to do and uh, personally, last night I was thinking about it and I was just so excited because I get to see some of you guys. And it just boggles my mind that in the span of over 100, not 100, but over a year, uh, this is only the second official church gathering we've had. And so I'm definitely looking forward to it. Uh, but even if you're not able, hopefully you don't feel left out. Uh, things do definitely look more promising with respect to us being able to gather. And that is something we are heavy in planning for. And so I am definitely excited for that prospect sooner than later. Now, if you're just joining us, uh, we are going through a book uh, through Genesis, like Pastor Tom mentioned. And today, just to go straight into it, uh, we were going we're gonna to land in what many consider to be the climax of Abraham's journey of faith that we've been trekking along with ever since uh, a few months ago now in chapter 12. And, and just to say right off the bat, the climax understandably revolves around the arrival of the promised offspring for Abraham and Sarah, who is Isaac. And so we're going to land and start our message in Genesis chapter 21, verse 1 to 7. But for reasons I'll explain in a bit, we're actually going to spend the rest of the message camping over in Genesis chapter 22. And so get ready, because this, like I said, it very much is the climax of this entire journey that we've been going on. Uh, to use an overused analogy, if every other week before the events were kind of like solo Marvel movies, this is the Avengers of Abraham's life. This is the culmination of all those micro episodes of faith that have led up to this kind of climactic point. So please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. I'll read for us verse 1 through 7, and we'll get headfirst into God's word for today. So Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. It's the reading of God's word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. It's the reading of God's word. Now, let me remind you that the anticipation and tension that has been built ever since God first showed up to Abraham in chapter 12 has single-handedly pretty much revolved around this promise of descendants that he's going to give to Abraham and Sarah. And so naturally, the question we need to see and what we're eagerly waiting for is, well, who is that at least one descendant through whom God's promise is going to be realized? And there is this narrative tension that is built up since chapter 12, which is we encounter all these obstacles regarding that descendant, don't we? Sarah is barren. They're only getting older. Abram and Sarah therefore try to, in the flesh, take matter into their own hands. So they get Hagar, Sarah's servant, and they give birth in the flesh to Ishmael, 
who we later find out that's not who God has promised. There's two situations with Pharaoh and Abimelech, which we heard last week, where Sarah's purity and the, is the covenant is almost compromised because of what goes on in Abraham's deception and his, his lying and even his justification of it. And so there's all this tension kind of built up. So you would think in chapter 21, when Isaac finally arrives, that the Bible will kind of shoot up fireworks and make it a big deal. I know for me, as I'm rejourning through Genesis, that's kind of what I was anticipating. But if you didn't feel it as we just read, Isaac's actual birth and arrival in Scripture is actually pretty anticlimactic. In fact, the Bible does not even spend one full chapter on it. One could argue that chapter 21, actually, the birth of Isaac is actually in the background to two thirds of the text, which has nothing to do with actually the birth of Isaac explicitly. And if I can summarize basically what we just read, it basically is distilled and summarized that, you know, the Lord did what he said he would do. Sarah and Abraham gave birth to Isaac. They were old and they were happy. Like that's literally like so anticlimactic when you consider all that has been built up to this point. Now, obviously, I am trivializing it to a degree to make a point, but I really do think the author, by virtue of how and what he's saying about the birth of Isaac is communicating two things. Number one. We should not be surprised that God did what he said he would do. Like, There's nothing spectacular that God followed through on his word. So that's, that's the first thing we should realize. That's literally the language, right? The God spoke, God said, that's kind of the re repeated theme in there. God said he would show up and do this, and God did it. And so there's nothing spectacular about God doing what he said he would do. But secondly, the author seems to be indirectly communicating that to the reader, the birth of Isaac is actually not the climax of the Abrahamic narrative. Remember. The narrative that began back in chapter 12 revolves around Abraham and his journey of faith in growing to trust and believe that God is faithful to his covenant. And the birth of Isaac is part of that, but it's that lens and context we need to understand if we are to appropriately enter into the real climax that unfolds in chapter 22. And unlike kind of the simplistic, anticlimactic tone of chapter 21, verse 1 to 7, I would argue chapter 22, which we're going to go through, is the quite opposite, where the author seems to really camp on it. It's almost written like a dramatic movie, literally the way it's written, because it is such a significant moment, not only in Abraham's life and journey, but you'll see by extension all of scripture. And so in order to grasp kind of the reality and weight of what's going on, and because I recognize this is such a familiar story to some, and we don't want to just gloss over it and just discount it as something we already know, we're going to go through the story little by little, which I personally love doing. And as we journey and color in the details, I guess unlike a more traditional sermon where subconsciously you're immediately just waiting for, okay, so what's the practical application? What's the main point? I would encourage us, uh, please just sit in the text with me. Take the time and the space of your mind and your heart to emotionally and mentally place yourself in this story if it really is the quote-unquote Avengers of Abraham's life. If there's any movie you want to really take in fully, it's this one. Or if I can put it another way, this is the one you should go to the theater for, spiritually speaking. Everything else, maybe you can stream at home, but this one, you need the Dolby surround sound. You need to have those 3D glasses on. That's the one. And so with that being said, uh, buckle up because it begins in chapter 22, verse 1. So chapter 22, verse 1, it reads, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. So let's pause there. So the setting, according to text, is these three words, after these things. And obviously, in, in the immediate context, after these things might be referring to the recent past, or maybe what had happened immediately before. But in a larger sense, 
after these things is likely referring to after everything that has happened since chapter 12. After all that we've basically journeyed through as a church and everything we've been preaching on since this series started, after all of that, it's as if to say everything has led up to this point and what God is about to do and say to Abraham. After all of that. And we are immediately told God comes to Abraham, not just to say hello, but he comes with a test. Now, there's a lot that can be said about testing and God and temptation and definitely stick around the Q&A if you want more meat to that. But just to give a simple definition, testing can be different in different contexts. In this context, it carries the idea of when you test something, you're, you're stretching and you're pulling it to see the quality and value of something. And in this situation, which is consistent with the narrative, it appears God intends to test and stretch Abraham's faith to the fullest to reveal what it's really made of. And the test is very fitting of that. What is that test? Verse two. It's a famous one. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, if you've grown up in the church or if you've been exposed to Christianity in any sense, you might just turn off because it's like, oh, this is that story. And I would want to caution us to do that, to not do that. Because the command itself, it, it is straightforward. I, I agree with there. It's God is saying, here's the test, sacrifice Isaac. But that's where I think we do need to kind of take the plane into the trees a little bit if we want to appreciate kind of what's going on. Notice first the weird way that God describes Isaac, right? He doesn't just say, take your son. Because if he had said that, some actually speculate that Abraham might have chosen to take Ishmael. Because people forget he actually has two sons. So it's like, oh, I ain't touching Isaac. I take Ishmael. So he, he's very certain Hey, take your son, but not just any son. Take your only son, Isaac. And he doesn't just say Isaac, but God gets very specific. He says, your son, your only son, as if now he's rubbing it in. By the way, he's that son that was promised. He's the only way that you're going to get the fulfillment of the blessing that I said. It's that son, Isaac, the covenant son. And not only that son, the son whom you love. Because obviously, Abraham understandably had a special love for Isaac, who at this point would have probably spent a good number of years as his son. And not most significantly, this is probably my personal takeaway as I was studying this. Did you know this is the first mention of love in scripture? Such a monumental concept that is so indicative of what Christian faith is. The very first time the word and idea of love is mentioned and introduced in scripture, it is in the context of the love between a father and a son. Very, very significant in my opinion. And you'll notice throughout the text that the author seemingly goes out of his way to actually constantly re-emphasize this father-son love and dynamic. And we'll obviously retouch on that later because there's a very big significance to that. But with that detail in mind, that's the command. Take your son, your only son, your beloved son, Isaac, take him to the mountain. I'll tell you where and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, like I mentioned, let's really not just gloss over it, but let's put ourselves in Abraham's shoes and his emotional state probably as he's trying to process and realize what God had just asked him to do in real time. Because you see, in one sense, Abraham, at this point of his journey, he knows God has made this covenant promise to bless me with descendants, and that's supposed to happen through Isaac. And in another sense, God fears and trusts God, so he wants to obey him. And God's command here in obeying him seems to actually nullify the very covenant promise that he's given. So on polar ends of the extreme, you have God's promise and God's command. Very, very confusing, 
very, very big tension here. And imagine if you're Abraham trying to figure this out and process that. Like, what is going on here? It seems very contradictory. So let's see what happens next. As he's probably thinking about that, verse 3 tells us, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, uh, one thing I will note, it's so interesting to me that not what is included in this story, but what's not included. Like there's so many questions and holes if you really think about it. Like, first off, where's Sarah? <laughs> there's no mention of Sarah. I'm pretty sure Sarah, as, as Isaac's mom, would not be cool what's about to happen, but there's no mention of her. There's actually no mention of what, what Abraham's actually feeling and thinking. There's no real mention of how Isaac is probably interpreting what's going on. And so that's where I'm sure you've heard, if you've heard this text before, a lot of preachers will usually take the liberty of inserting what they believe is going on. And so a lot of preachers make the conclusion that from the text, Abraham's seemingly stoic and determined demeanor is more indicative in their opinion that, oh, he is a man of faith. Like, wow, he doesn't even question. He seems to just be okay with this command. He obeys promptly. And so for so long, I personally actually thought that was going on. I embraced that interpretation like, wow, Abraham, what a man of faith. What a giant of faith. God tells him to kill his son and he's unflinching and he's down to do that. That's where the perspective will point to things like, see, that's why Abraham rose early in the morning. Because he wanted, he was eager to, to obey God. Now, I'm not necessarily saying this is a false interpretation. But I was praying, preparing, and wrestling with this text pretty deeply. Because I really wanted to wring it out. Because it's such a familiar text for some. And I would argue, I don't think that's the full picture of what's going on here. And there's a few reasons why. You see, first, the benefit that we have now as a church. In that we've been going through a series through Genesis. Rather than just a one-shot message on this story is we have a context of Abraham's journey. And we have clearly journeyed with Abraham enough to see this guy is imperfect. He is emotional. He has regular moments of failure and fear. And just last week, we saw Abraham display this huge moment of weakness when he you know, lied to Abimelech and justified his sin. And not only that, consider the context that Abraham and Sarah have literally waited decades for the arrival of their promised offspring in Isaac. And now that he has finally arrived, Verse 7 ends by saying that their home, their marriage, their family has been filled with joy and laughter again. As if to say, Isaac is literally the treasure and the joy of their life. And it's very, very textual to conclude, therefore, Abraham arguably loves nothing and no one more than he loves Isaac. So then I would refute that original interpretation and say, do you really think it is feasible that this Abraham was emotionally uninvolved in what God was asking him to do? I would say no. The second reason is a personal one and it's related. As many of you know, I recently became a father. And before I became a father, the concept that Abraham would sacrifice his son, I'm like, man, I'll do that, right? That's what godliness is. Now that I actually have a son, it's true. Uh, it's, it's so cliche, but they always say, hey, when you become a dad, you'll just know. You'll just know. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And nothing's going to change. And for me, on that day, when Angela was sleeping and knocked out because she had just, you know, suffered through delivery, and I was sitting there with Ezra in my arms, I was like, now I know. <laughs> like, literally, it's as if a chamber in my heart unlocked. And if you know me, I'm not the most affectionate person, but Angela, my wife, will tell you the love I have for Ezra, it's, it's really like on another level. It's unparalleled. And I really had to ask myself, you know, 
I don't think even if I grew infinitely in godliness and in faith, I simply cannot fathom that I'd be emotionally detached from a command to kill my son. So that being said, let's not trivialize the weight of what's going on here by just saying, well, what a man of faith. He just woke up early. All that is to say, I actually agree more with the idea. Abraham likely rose early in the morning because he couldn't sleep. Think about that. He was probably so burdened and so stressed and so tossing and turning and wrestling to the point of sleeplessness. And I think the text points to this idea of this restless state that Abraham was likely in. Because remember, Abraham is a man of wealth and stature. He does not need to do menial tasks like saddle his donkey or prepare wood and fire. Those are tasks that servants would have always done for him. But the text makes it a point to say that Abraham himself gets up early in the morning and he busies himself with preparation. He saddles his own donkey. He cuts the wood. Why is he doing that other than like what a lot of us do when we are so burdened in our hearts and our minds, we need to busy ourselves to take our mind off of things. And so continuing on, he does that. And the author says, he, not, not that he took two young men and Isaac, but again, I'm going to overemphasize it. He took two young men and his son, Isaac, to the place God had told him. And this next detail for me landed like a pair of bricks on my shoulders, to be honest, because it'd be one thing if God said, hey, go outside your house right now and sacrifice Isaac. Right. I mean, that'd be painful, but at least it'd be quick. Like for me, if I ever have to die a martyr's death, it's like, please just like shoot me so it could end. Like, don't make it a torturous, elongated thing. But verse four tells us on the third day, Abraham lifted and saw the place. You know what that means? It takes three days to even get to the place that he's going to kill Isaac. Three long, torturous days of having to journey, knowing where he's headed, knowing why he's headed there. In other words, this obedience is not a rash in the moment thing where it's like a retreat or a revival. Or like, oh my God, God, no, no. This is a sober-minded, real obedience that has soberly counted the cost and is weighing what it is that God is asking of him. And when they get to probably the base of the mountain in verse 5, Abraham says to the young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So they get there. And understandably, considering what Abraham is about to do, he kind of unloads the two people that came with them. They leave all the unnecessary stuff behind. And here, I kind of want to make this caveat here. A lot of pastors here will take this moment to say, see, that's why Abraham is such a faithful guy. Because he says, they will go together. And both of them will return. And I've heard so many messages about that. Like, wow, what a man of faith. Like, he was so confident that he was going to come back with Isaac, even though he was going to go to kill him. Maybe, maybe. But I actually lean more towards the notion that, well, let me counter that and say, well, what was he supposed to say? Is he supposed to say, I'm going to go there with Isaac, but only I will return? Like, talk about confusing. And, and personally, knowing that if we plant ourselves in the emotional state of a very real human in Abraham, do you really think he had the space and mind to theologically process a statement that, hmm, I'm going to go, but we will both return because God is. No, I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think that's consistent with what's going on. And if you have questions about that, I can definitely there's more to that I can explain in the Q&A. So whatever the case, in verse six, he tells us Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering laid it on Isaac, took in his hand the fire and the knife, and both of them went together. Now let's digest this imagery here. It's a very weighty one. After a long, tiring three-day journey, they leave their excess belongings. They leave the two servants. They leave the donkey. So it's just father and son about to trek up this area and mountain likely. 
And Abraham, imagine he says, all right, Isaac, it's just me and you now. Here's what we're going to take. Here, Isaac, carry this, this load of wood. It's going to be for the burnt offering. I'll take everything we need for the fire. And I'll take the knife, knowing conscientiously that the person that they're preparing all that for, the person they're going to kill, the person they're going to sacrifice is his son, Isaac. Holy moly. My goodness. And so Isaac finally speaks. Very understandably, I'm surprised you didn't speak up earlier. Like imagine they're halfway to the mountain, halfway to the site. They take like a quick break from like some trail mix and they're like sweating. And verse seven, Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, by the way, this is such an explicit father son here. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. It's almost like a cheesy, you know, like a teledrama, isn't it? My father, my son, like that's so over the top. I think it's intentional. And he said, behold, there's a fire in the wood. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Very reasonable question. And so that's where Abraham says the famous line, God will provide for himself, the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the both of them went together. Now, without getting into too much detail, I think it is worth saying a sentence or two that Isaac himself seems to be a pretty obedient man of faith, right? Uh, they all, people speculate, understandably, that if he was old enough to carry a block of wood up the mountain, he was probably old enough and strong enough to fight Abraham if he wanted to. I mean, considering Abraham's a 100-year-old man, he could have easily probably resisted. We don't see that in the text. And we don't want to dive too much because it's not really see, shown. But the implication is that Isaac himself was also going along with what was happening. Now, when they actually arrive at the place God had told, the scene seems to slow down. And it kind of reads like a play-by-play slow-motion camera. Literally, that's what's going on. I mean, just imagine and picture if this was in a movie theater, verse 9 and 10, because it does play. If this was like a movie script, it's very particular about how it's written. It says, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then the camera zooms in even more and says, then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. It is literally like a slowed down scene in a Korean dramatic movie or whatever, where they want you to not miss any details. And this is where I would argue this moment, this freeze frame picture where Abraham's hand is reached out, knife in hand, fully prepared to slaughter his only son. That precise moment and image, I would argue, is the climax of Abraham's journey of faith. Everything has culminated to that very moment. And I would argue the text makes it clear. That's when the parameters of the test are removed. And verse 11 tells us the angel of the Lord appears, calls from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. He says, stop. Do not lay your hand on the boy. Do anything for now I know, a.k.a. the purpose of the test has been accomplished. Now I know you fear God. You did not withhold your son, your only son from me. Because remember, the whole narrative has been about Abraham's growing trust in God, even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make sense. And therefore, understandably, the test of sacrificing Isaac, the covenant promised offspring, is the ultimate test of that. Now, this is where I want to give a little bit peeling back the layers uh, application for us, you see, because even on the even on the surface, yeah, the text is clear. The test was about killing Isaac. I would argue that the deeper and internal true test was that it was always about testing the quality of Abraham's faith because Abraham knew killing Isaac would be essentially to kill God's promise to him. 
And the, the tension, like I mentioned, whereas killing the promise, but to disobey God, even though it seemingly was contradictory, would be to elevate and trust and love the promise over the promise, sir. This is a classic scenario we all struggle with oftentimes, where we fall too in love with the gifts of God and place our trust in those things rather than placing our trust in God himself. And the commendation that Abraham receives from the angel, from the scriptures, is rooted in this idea that what made Abraham a righteous man of faith, he was willing to give up that which he held dearest and most loved in his life, namely his son, Isaac. So here's another way to look at it. Abraham thought the test was to sacrifice Isaac, but in God's eyes, the deeper test was actually Abraham to sacrifice himself, to offer himself as a sacrifice, to sacrifice and surrender his personal love, his personal desires, his personal expectation, his personal will and wisdom with regard to Isaac. Because you see, Abraham's connection to Isaac, yeah, he loved Isaac, but Isaac represented more, so much more for who Abraham's identity. And to sacrifice Isaac would, in a sense, be to sacrifice himself. And so the practical question we should all naturally be asking in our journey of faith is this. Do we fear God enough and trust him enough to be willing to surrender and sacrifice even that which we hold closest and dearest to our hearts? And I do think a key word here is the idea of being willing. Because in the end of the day, Abraham, we learn he doesn't actually kill Isaac, right? And so what we learn is that walking by faith, I would argue, is best captured by a heart that is submitted to God in its willingness to follow his commands. Now, I'm going to do something we haven't usually done because I want you to catch it. So I'm going to multitask. I'm going to put the quote I'm about to read so you can see it. No excuse. I like how it's put here. Believers often wonder how they may know the will of God. But they forget 90% of knowing of the will of God consists in willingness to do it before it's known. Is that not what happens in the Abrahamic narrative? God says, go. I'm not going to tell you where, but go. The willingness to go before you know where you're going. And God often takes the will for the deed with his people. When he finds them truly willing to make the sacrifice he demands, he often, though not always, he often does not require it. This is how we can be martyrs without ever dying for Jesus. We can live the life of a martyr right now. Is this not what the New Testament says when it says, die to yourself daily? What Romans 12 says when it says, offer your life as a spiritual act of worship, sacrificing daily, constantly that I will submit, surrender, and follow God in the day-to-day -day moment. And even if he doesn't explicitly call me to kill my son or do something radical, I have a willingness. And what that does is it does not excuse any of us, even if we don't have a tangible command like Abraham, it does not excuse any disciple from cultivating an inner willingness to submit and prepare to obey God. No one is excused. And so through Abraham's story, we learn living by faith means we are willing to surrender and sacrifice even our most treasured possessions and dreams out of obedience and love for God. And this is not the purpose of the message, but I do want to give a quick word of application here, which is, hey, do you realize all of us, like one way or another, we are living lives of sacrifice? Every one of us sacrifices all the time. We all knowingly and unknowingly put wood, fire, and we build altars all the time to sacrifice whatever or whoever it is that we trust most. And the sad reality is that as we sacrifice for these things outside of God, whether it be career, 
relationships, status, security, whatever it may be, what happens when we place our faith and trust in those things and we place ourselves on the altar and sacrifice for those things, what happens is just that we sacrifice ourselves. <laughs> we lose ourselves. In trying to find joy, happiness, approval, and security by others and the things of this world, we end up killing ourselves. And that's what scripture says. What good is it for the man to gain the whole wide world, but lose and forfeit his soul? And that is literally the picture of every single person outside of Christ. You are pursuing the whole world in career, in possessions, in relationships, in status. And as you do that, you sacrifice and forfeit your soul. And you end up killing yourself because no one is created and intended to find those deeper things outside of God. That's where we have to remember in this story, the most beautiful aspect of it is not Abraham or his sacrifice or even his faith out already. You know, the most beautiful aspect of it is what Abraham comes to realize. And he ends with this promise and beauty that God will provide the sacrifice. And he names the entire mount, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who sees and the Lord who provides. And in Abraham's case, the text tells us God follows through and does provide, doesn't he? He doesn't have to kill Isaac, but something needs to die. Something needs to be sacrificed. And out of nowhere, coincidentally, verse 13, Abraham looks up and behold, behind him was a ram. An animal for sacrifice caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is to this day on the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. Now, obviously, it's not coincidence. Abraham himself knows it's not coincidence. And this is where I want to harp on just one word there, the word instead. This is the first vivid picture we have in Scripture of what will be prevalent and emphasized throughout the rest of the Old Testament, which is this word instead, or if I can use a loftier word, the idea of a substitute. That's what's going on here. Abraham kills the ram and offers it up as a burnt offering instead of, in place of, as a substitute for his son Isaac. And so the idea here is something has to be sacrificed. And if it's not going to be you, it better be someone, better be something. And so we see here, God spares Abraham's son by sacrificing something else in his place. Well, that's where I think it's so timely that we cover this before Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because intentionally, like I mentioned, planted within the concept of the very first introduction of love is the idea of the father's love for his son. And this is an angle of the gospel that I think a lot of us have not treaded recently. And the way I know that is because for a lot of people who are churched, who have been Christian for a while, I mean, let's be honest, the gospel message is as stale as you saying, I bought new shoes. Hey, Jesus died for my sins and I bought new shoes. It carries the same emotional weight because it's such an overused, cheapened statement. We, we see Jesus as this robotic tin man who's just, well, of course he had to die for me. We see God as this distant deity. He was almost obligated to show us grace and we are stuck in our sins. So therefore we are so hardened to actually feel palpably the beauty of the gospel and what it should do and how it should transform our lives. But all that is to say through the lens of a father and son, well, let's apply the gospel filter because I, I don't even need to say there are irrefutable parallels to God, the father's perfect love for his son, Jesus, his only son, his beloved son, and Jesus's obedience and sacrifice. Because guess what? On the mount that the Lord will provide, I'm not saying it's the same place, but it's definitely in the similar place. 2000 years after this event, we are going to see another father 
similarly journey up this mountain with his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. And I think people forget God loves Jesus. People forget that. I think people see God the Father as his general and Jesus is kind of this sergeant who's following marching orders. No, 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 no. The first and only one of the only times God opens his mouth about how he feels towards Jesus is not what an obedient guy or this guy listens to me or this guy trusts me. But no, Matthew 3.17 says the heavens open up and God as father looks at his son and out of the abundance of his heart says, this is my beloved son in who I am so well pleased. I love my son. That's what's going on there. And much like Isaac, Jesus, God's only son, is going to be tasked to obedience and he doesn't question. He also will carry a load and burden of wood up a mountain, the very wood that will be used as sacrifice on his own shoulders. And the parallel is uncanny until you reach this significant point of, of difference. And that difference happens when Jesus, God's son, God's only son, God's son whom he loves, is actually placed on the altar of sacrifice and the father raises the knife and the cup of wrath. Ain't no angel to tell him to stop. There's no substitute. There's no ram come to thicket. There's no sparing in this situation. And there is no other lamb. Why? Because he is the other lamb. Every time in the Old Testament, they're pointing to who is going to be sufficient to appease God, to bring us near to God, who is going to be the one that's going to be worthy to be slain for the sins of all. And John the Baptist, finally, when Jesus shows up on the picture, looks at Jesus and says, oh, there he is, the lamb who will take away the sins of the world. And from that moment on, anyone who knows the Old Testament narrative of Abraham and Isaac is thinking, is Jesus the lamb? that God has been preparing and talking about all this time that he will provide. And God the Father doesn't just display his willingness to pour his wrath on his son. He actually does it. The gospel is not wordplay. The gospel is historical reality. All so that we would be able to, by Jesus being the perfect substitute, instead of sinners like us, being the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who was blameless yet took all the blame, Give us a way so that if we, not by our works, because by the law, no one will be justified, but simply by believing that God is who he is for us, we could be reconciled and spared from his holy cup of wrath. You see, that's a power punch of the gospel. And that's why the apostle Paul, with that very, very vivid image etched in his mind, uses that same word, spare, in the context of sparing Isaac the son and God not sparing Jesus his son. And in Romans 8.32 gives one of the most beautiful, timeless, logical explanations of why would you not follow God and trust God? Because in Romans 8.32, guess what he says? With Abraham's narrative in mind, he says, he being God the father who did not spare his own son. There's nothing a father wants to do more than spare his own son. Any father would take a bullet over having his own son, but God didn't do that. God did not spare his own son, his only son, his only begotten son whom he loves, but gave him up for us all. That is a euphemism. That is a flowery language to say he's the one who put him to death. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you understand the weight of what Paul is saying there? 
He's saying, and this is what I would hope to impress on all of our hearts. Who else is like our God? Who else remains so faithful despite our faithlessness? Who else showers his grace and mercy despite our constant failing? Who else is so faithful to keep his promise? And who else has proven his love for us like God has, the Father, through the gospel and not sparing but giving up his only son? In other words, and I would plead with you today, whether you're Christian or not, what more can God possibly do to convince you? What more? Christ on the cross was his, this is all I got. I love no one more than Christ. And I've given him it up to you. What more possibly can I do to show you? It's been, a, it's been a long pandemic, shifting gears a little bit. And I would argue a lot of us have pursued and chased after pretty useless things in this season. I mean, the most probably demoralizing thing for any of us is just take, just look at your time management thing on your social media feeds and see how much time you spent on there. <laughs> probably like five, six hours minimum you know, coveting after other people's stuff, looking on Zillow for homes we can't afford, being, being, you know, being jealous that, you know, we can't look this way or do that. And, and I don't want to trivialize, that's, those are very real struggles, but in, in the scope of the gospel and an eternal God who has forced his way into human history and literally bleeding through the pages of his scripture that he has etched through Holy Spirit, through human writers, who is saying, I'm trying to show you something here. There's a better way to live. There's a better faith you can have when you place it in me. I don't want you to sacrifice yourself on the altar of whatever it is you're doing, career, uh, reputation, fame, because in the end of the day, that's what's going to happen. You're going to die. You're going to kill yourself. But I've placed a replacement. I have a substitute so that you do not have to die. And you get all of those things anyways, approval, security, love, fulfillment, eternal security. And so with Holy Week, Good Friday and Easter coming up, what better or more timely of a season to reassess our relationship and faith in God? To really ask ourselves, these cheap gods that I'm pursuing, do they compare to the loving and gracious God of Scripture? The God so trustworthy like the God of Abraham. And I would challenge you, is there more that God can possibly do? Like, do you really think if God gave you a new car, suddenly you're going to be convinced that he loves me more? Really? Or if God, I don't know, like gives you more money, is that really going to convince you of God's love for you? No. There's a reason why whenever people come to God with their felt needs, he says, your sins are forgiven. But God, I didn't ask for my sins to be forgiven. Yeah, you didn't ask because what you want is not what you need. I'm going to give you what you need. That's why I put my son on the cross. That is what Holy Week's about. Can we think about that? Let's not waste this season of reopening. We're going to pray today, and we're probably going to repent a lot in our prayer for those who are coming. But you don't have to be at a prayer gathering to do that. And what I would say is the same God who did not spare but gave up his son whom he loves more than anything else in all eternity and this universe gave him up for our sake. And that's the same God who is trying to maybe awaken some hardened and calloused hearts and say, will you draw near to me in faith and trust? And wherever you're at, I'll meet you there. Let's pray together.